Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast. And to um, see others that appear on our website, you can go to www.yalerudcenter.org and uh, you'll see a list of previous speakers we've had at the Rudd Center. I'm very happy today to introduce to you Neil Hamilton. Uh, Neil is the Dwight Opperman Chair of Law and Professor of Law and Director of the Agricultural Law Center at Drake University in Iowa. He has an undergraduate degree from Iowa State University and his law degree from the University of Iowa where he won honors. Uh, He has served as an assistant attorney general in the state of Iowa, as a faculty member at the University of Arkansas, and has now been with Drake University for a number of years. Neil is one of the pioneers in applying the law to uh, food and agriculture issues and the public policy implications of that. And in that capacity, has written very important books and guides for uh, farmers and for other people regarding agriculture and the law. He's now the chair of the Agriculture Law Section of the Association of American Law Schools. He's the past president of the American Agriculture Law Association and has a number of similar uh, positions of authority and honors. So, Neil, welcome. Well, thank you. It's a real honor to be here at Yale and to be at the Red Center. Um, Neil, one thing that that I didn't say about your background is that you're a farmer. Mm -hmm. You grew up as a farmer (laughs) and are still a farmer. And I know as you talk about uh, the way farming has changed, you use the example of what uh, your parents' experience was like as farmers and what yours is now. And I think it typifies some major changes in the food system that most people aren't aware of. Could you tell us a little bit of that story? Well, sure. Well, my family's farmed in Iowa since the 1870s, and uh, I grew up on what I describe as kind of a quintessential small family farm, 200 acres and corn and soybeans and hogs and cattle uh, during the 50s and 60s. And uh, uh, by the time that I was done living on the farm, we'd gotten out of livestock, and mom and dad were just raising corn and soybeans. And uh, they're gone now, though a part of the farm still, uh, I have it. And uh, one of the changes you can see is that uh, uh, the neighbor who uh, farms our ground, uh, he farms probably close to 3,000 acres, all of grain. And so uh, the scale of agriculture has changed significantly. But my wife, uh, Con, and I have a small market garden farm, Sunstead, and uh, we raise fruits and vegetables, flowers to sell to local restaurants and friends and to uh, uh, farmers' markets. And uh, I hesitate to call what we're doing farming, you know, compared to the type of farming that my mom and dad did and that kind of a more classic Iowa farmers, but yet we're certainly involved in, in food production. And I always tell students and others that there are two things that are different about how we farm and what we experienced that my mom and dad never experienced in the 50-plus years that they farmed. And one of them is the very simple issue of being able to set our prices when, you know, restaurants call up and order tomatoes or people come to the farmer's market stand and want to buy new potatoes and they say, how much are they? And then we can set the price. And there are a lot of factors that go into determining the price, but yet we set it. And I know in all the time that my parents farmed, uh, they were never in control of the price they got. Uh, it was whatever was listed on the board for the grain or what the livestock buyers would give you. And and uh, that, that idea of the kind of fighting a system they felt out of control of certainly added to some of their 
I think, sense of frustration. But the other factor that's different, and it's, uh, it, it deals with another part of what I see as agriculture in a food system, is that my mom and dad probably never ever had anyone come back and thank them for raising food. Certainly no one ever came back and said, oh my gosh, those were the best what, best soybeans or best corn, uh, even when they raised hogs and cattle, no one came back and said that thank you for those great steaks because they really didn't sell food to people. They didn't deal with eaters. Uh, they sold ingredients that somebody else turned into food. And, and even if people thought what they raised was good, they didn't thank them. They might have thanked uh, the food manufacturer the grocery store. Be it on our farm, with the type of products we sell and the way we sell them. I know how important it is to us when we go into a restaurant and there are names on the menu. There's Sunstead Farms, Heirloom Tomatoes, or people come back to our market stand and say, oh my gosh, those were the best baby beets we've ever had. They were just fabulous. And and there's that psychic satisfaction and sense of connection of being part of the food system and, and feeling that sense of responsibility that there are people on the other end of what we're doing. And it... Uh, uh, it may translate into money in, in the sense of being able to get higher prices for it, but there's also a real just sense of, of personal satisfaction. And I can't help but think that my mom and dad missed a, a major part of the, what should be the joy of raising food. But yet that separation, that disconnection that they had from consumers and really being part of the food system, I think that you can extrapolate that out into really a divide that you see in much of conventional agriculture. And it's what I think explains some of the real conflicts you have and attitudes between farmers and condition, conventional agricultural production and how they perceive consumers and consumers' attitudes and interests around food. You know, it's interesting because we, we talk frequently about uh, people being distant from their food. Mm -hmm. And usually when we say that, we're talking about the consumers being distant mm -hmm. from their food. They're physically distant from it, and there enters the whole concept of food miles, and mm -hmm. you and other colleagues have helped pioneer that. And then we talk about them being psychologically distant from it because they don't know who made it or where it came from or even what's in it with so many ingredients being mm -hmm. packed into processed foods. But I never thought before about farmers being distant from the very food they raise, but yeah. it sounds like they can be. They can be, or it's, it might just be that they don't think of it as being food. You know, it, or, and, and they certainly don't necessarily think of themselves being in some type of connection or community with eaters, that there's somebody at the other end of, of this product. And that's maybe truer for grains, which are typically converted into something else. But uh, I, I just feel that there was something that they lost there and, and can be very important. And in many ways, that sense of connection, whether it's the farmers looking for that human connection or consumers wanting to put a face on their food it helps explain a lot of the movements we see in our food system, certainly around farmers markets and organics and, and CSAs and much of kind of the movement behind local foods. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in passing was that this um, neighbor farmer of yours mm -hmm. now can farm with far fewer people, many mm -hmm. multiples of sure. the acres that your parents could farm. And it's interesting to think about what's made that possible and also the legal ramifications of all that. So, of mm -hmm. course, it's, you know, better machinery and things like that. But it's a lot of other things that strike right into the law, like mm -hmm. how much can you genetically modify sure. crops? Um, what are the, uh, the environmental implications of heavy use of fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, and the like? 
And there we get into some very interesting and complicated areas of the law that most people wouldn't think about. So let's talk about a few of those okay, as sure. examples. Let's talk about genetically modified foods. Sure. Now, you can, if you could give us a few examples of how that's done in modern, modern American farming and then how the law comes into play. Sure. And I know you're especially interested in, in labeling of well, genetically modified Well, there food. are a couple of dimensions about biotechnology and what you know, we'll use the shorthand term called GMOs. And, and I think people don't realize uh, that uh, even though we might say that 90% of the soybean crop in the country is GMO or biotechnology. Standing for genetically for modified. For genetically modified, 75% of the corn is. Uh, that that transformation is typically just around two different traits. Uh, most crops have been genetically modified to resist higher levels of Roundup or glyphosate, the active ingredient, a weed killer, and so it allows uh, people to use a heavier dose of this product, get cleaner weed control, and it uh, makes the production of those crops cleaner, allows you to cover more acres, and uh, the proof's in the pudding in some ways in that you wouldn't see that heavy of adoption of that technology, which costs more if it didn't work. You know, farmers wouldn't do it if it didn't make sense, and it makes sense, and particularly makes sense in the scale of agriculture like the neighbor I'm talking about. It, it's what helps him to plant thousands of acres of soybeans and to not have to mechanically cultivate or to hire people to go through and walk uh, well, for the weeds. If I could interrupt for a second, would you tell that one company in particular is a big player in this, Monsanto? Well, Monsanto certainly developed the technology, and they developed the technology largely because their product, Roundup, glyphosate, was going off patent and uh, developing seeds that were resistant to it and then trying to uh, promote its use and the contracts for the use of, of the product uh, was was a, a sound economic judgment on their part, and it's it's led to billions of dollars of income for them. It's a very successful uh, set of technologies, the seed that's engineered and the product, the, the chemical. And the other type of biotechnology is the crops that have been engineered for BT, or Bacillus thuringiensis, which is makes them essentially uh, express their own insecticide or a, a trait that causes the insects that predate on them to, to die. And uh, and you see that engineered into cotton and corn and potatoes, though those have since come off the market. And so those technologies have, uh, they've increased the cost uh, from farmer standpoint. Seed's more expensive. You pay tech fees. Uh, you sign legal agreements, which promise that you won't save and reuse any of it because these are protected uh, by patents. And uh, there's been a fairly significant then transformation of the production. The other transformation that's happened, and the one that relates to the food labeling, is how we've really gone through, I guess, what you could call a paradigm shift. And that's a term people here used, and you kind of wonder you know, what it might mean. But this, I think, may be a good example in that, uh, you know, let's say 15 years ago, uh, you could have been confident that any of the food that you bought in the store, uh, that none of it was genetically modified, at least in that idea of you know, transferring genes, you know, that things that couldn't happen in nature. Uh, whereas today, uh, that same decision, you would have to almost assume that they did have those products in them because uh, soybean oil and uh, high fructose corn syrup and kind of the ingredients that are made from corn and soybeans are almost ubiquitous in our food system. You know, people would estimate that maybe two-thirds of the processed manufactured food products in a grocery store have 
one of those two ingredients, if not both, in them. And you and, noted, by the way, that people don't under don't appreciate oh, that because be, people believe they're not yeah, eating. Yeah, because you know CBS News recently ran a, a news story, and as part of it, they gave a poll that said fifty some percent of the people they polled said, "Oh, they they don't buy GMO foods." Well, the reality is, unless they're intentionally going out of the way and only buying organic food or maybe raising their own food, which is less likely, they are buying them. The point is they don't know, and that's where we come to the labeling issue because uh, uh, early on from the development of biotechnology in the United States, uh, you had both a combination of a fairly kind of anti-regulatory approach or a deregulatory approach, uh, which you know led to this kind of in some ways, regulatory dance that goes on between the USDA and EPA and the FDA over who's regulating the technology. And then secondly, though, you had the whole question of the, well, how do we consider them from a safety standpoint? And uh, the bottom line is we should hope they're all safe because we're eating them. uh, the the legal and scientific conclusion was, well, these were the substantial equivalent as conventional foods. And as a result, since there's a substantial equivalent, there's no inherent safety reasons that cause any significant concern. And as a result, since there's substantially equivalent, the fact that the food product may have been grown from parent seed that was modified, that fact isn't a material fact such that the FDA will require it to be affirmatively labeled on food. And that's kind of the legal term of art, is it a material fact? And so the bottom line is there's no affirmative labeling. And so it's not just do you not go into the store and find foods that say this contains GMOs, which is in fact a different situation than you find in Europe and other jurisdictions. In addition, the food industry, I think, was, if not bright enough, at least fortunate enough to kind of look down the road and say, you know what, we don't necessarily want to see a non-GMO food sector developing. And so back in the year 2000, they petitioned the FDA for a ruling on how people could, if they wanted to label their foods as having GMOs, how they could do that. Or alternatively, if someone wanted to label their foods as not having GMOs, how could they do that? The whole questions of absence labeling. And as you can imagine, the food industry, they didn't have any interest in making positive statements. Nobody's going to go out and start putting the labels on. They were more interested in making sure that somebody didn't. And their basic premise is that we're protecting consumers from consumer fraud because, you know, there really isn't this difference. But the FDA pretty much went along with the proposal that the industry proposed and, and issued a voluntary guidance in January of 2001, which I've described as kind of a shoot the survivors approach because the FDA concluded that genetic modification is confusing and are terms that people don't understand. And organism isn't accurately used because these aren't living materials. And, and you can't say free because there might be a little bit in there because of pollen drift. And so basically you can't use GMO or free. And so there's no GMO free labels or no GMOs or a GM with a slice, any of those things. What they did say was, well, you could describe them as being the products of biotechnology, which at least in my mind seems to be perhaps even more confusing than genetic modification. But, and they said, but you can only use that label if you did so so that the label doesn't imply or infer, infer that the food is a superior product, which is almost an impossible standard for anybody to match because how do I know how the consumers are going to react to what I truthfully put on my label? So long and the short of it is, is that food manufacturers people who are in the kind of natural food can, you know, market, but not organic, 
I don't think want to take the risk of using no GMO labels because it potentially subjects their foods to being have actions taken against them by the FDA. Even though this is, as lawyers would recognize, only a guidance. It's not even a regulation. It's just a guidance as to what the agency may do. But the effect of this has been very telling, and the proof of that is the contrast that you see with the BST-free milk market. And BST, or Prosilac, is a bioengineered product, that a drug given to cows that increases their natural uh, production. The FDA approved it, brought it to the market, said it's, again, safe. In fact, they claim that there isn't any way you could actually test a cow and tell whether it's naturally occurring or it's been added, though you as a producer would know whether you'd given the animal the shots. But the fight was over whether or not they were going to allow people to label it. And again, you have two issues. Could we affirmatively require you to label it? Vermont tried that. Court struck it down as being violation of free speech and that it was compelled commercial speech. Or alternatively, could I, as a dairy producer or a dairyer that contracted with people and said, I, you promise not to use it, I'll put it on my milk, this is BST-free. And, as people know who have been buying milk, if you go into the milk counter in the grocery store, uh, the, gro the grocery store is full of BST-free milk. Many dairies are going only that way. Some retailers, Walmart, for example, has announced they'll only use BST-free milk. And so the use of this technology is very much at risk. As a result, uh, Monsanto, which manufactures the product, and some of the dairies that use it, they're kind of fighting a rear guard action at the state level. They asked the Pennsylvania Commissioner of Agriculture to outlaw those labels. They considered it, though they withdrew that proposal. But the state of Ohio recently, in fact, issued new rules that prevents people from being able to label their milk as being BST-free. There's other things you can say. You can say, we don't use the product on our cows, and you still have to use the disclaimer. But so what you've seen happen with the milk market is that you have this three parts. You have conventional milk, organic milk at the other end, but then in the middle you have this non-GMO or non-BST milk. You don't see that in the food area. And right. that's an example of kind of the power of both controlling what people can say and the power of information because consumers are using that information with milk and they're making a calculation and you know, I don't care whether it's risky or not I don't want it and I'm willing to pay the difference and to me that is my premise of food democracy we should let people buy what they want to buy you know it's so interesting when you think about <coughs> vast majority of consumers would like to know whether the food is genetically modified the polls That's show what the that surveys say, yeah. <coughs> you have some people who are making genetically non-modified foods and they're happy to tell consumers that their foods have that but the the political power of the food industry and the collusion of the government I guess if yeah. you will and then of course the law gets used in a way that thwarts consumers from getting their yeah. information uh, that they want and people are willing to provide yeah. and it interferes with the kind of idea of food democracy True. you have. It, it's the the if not if not the purpose, at least the effect of that regulatory approach is to make the world safe for genetically modified foods. And you know, you don't have to be opposed to genetic modified foods to say, well, hold it, there are other values at stake here. This whole question of the right to speak, the right to be informed, the right of you know, informed choice. I, I mentioned uh, uh, in uh, the discussion earlier today the, the recent uh, district court case from California involving 
the use of Roundup Ready alfalfa, in which the federal courts have enjoined the further sale and marketing of that product until such time as the government actually does the environmental impact statement because of the concern that if you have the release of that product without regulation, it essentially means all of the alfalfa anywhere it's planted is going to be contaminated and it's going to be potentially a GMO. And the district court made that comment and said, you know, the real issue that's at stake here isn't the safety of the Roundup Ready alfalfa, it's the fact that doing this would deny farmers the opportunity to make a choice as to the technology they want to use and consumers the right to choose what they want to eat and that that is an important value and you know to me that's in many ways the essence of kind of the the connection between food and and democratic values so let's come back to your concept of food democracy sure. which i find very appealing you you've referred along the way in our discussion today mm-hmm. to several features of that but let's mm-hmm. just go down your list sure. if you will what are the essential uh, ingredients to to expressing food. Well, I think that you know the, the what I see is uh, you know many of the forces that are driving some of the changes we see in our food system, whether it's the local foods, organics, or even these fights over labels. It's not just about the food; it's these that these issues are in fact the expression of democratic tendencies, and the democratic tendencies are or the democratic values are the value of information the fact that we value information and the right to speak. You see it in the First Amendment, uh, for example. Uh, the right for people to make informed choices. You see that with elections. Buying food in a grocery store is not that much different than voting for who you're going to vote for. And we all know that we don't go and vote if there's nobody running. Uh, if there's one candidate, it's not a choice. Uh, you also see the engagement of broad sections of society. Everybody gets to vote. You know, we don't just have one class of people vote, one profession vote, everybody votes. And we're all equal in that regard. And much of the debate about food policy, certainly the work of of your center, is in many ways broadening the discussion, bringing other values and voices and people around the table so that it's not just food producers and manufacturers and technology companies, but instead, you know, it's consumers and school officials and people that are bringing other issues to the table and saying all of these things should be considered. And, and kind of valuing all of those. Uh, uh, and then uh, finally, another, I think, dimension of democracy uh, is in some ways a preference for the local, or at least a recognition of the importance of local. Certainly some of these issues are national issues. The Farm Bill that Congress just passed, it's an important part of setting the agenda for our food system. But so are the local decisions. When the school board decides what to do with vending machines, when the local government decides what to do with the community garden, or whether it's going to you know, do things to try to improve food access. And so democracy happens at all of these various levels. And you see all of those traits with the local food movement. And now alternatively, and this is where I think part of what makes the issue worth thinking about, is that you can look at the values that are reflected in our current food system or kind of a conventional or industrial food system or big food, perhaps, as you might refer to it. And you can say, well, are those very democratic or how do they, how well do we fare on the scale of democracy? Well, you've got strenuous efforts to deny labeling, to deny information, to limit the choices of consumers, to have the decisions made elsewhere. Oh, no, no, that's a federal question. The local government shouldn't decide that. That's not something we trust you to make locally. 
to deny people a seat at the table. Oh, those are decisions that need to be made elsewhere. If anything, you know, we're trying to kick more decisions kind of upstairs or even to internationalize them as opposed to localize them. And so in many ways, and I don't want to say that they've intentionally set out this way, but many of the values that in, that are kind of woven through the conventional food system are in v- very anti-democratic. Uh, you know, when when the success of the market for your product is premised on denying people information about either what's in it or how it's produced, to me that would seem like a, a difficult sp- place to start from in our society well, where we a, value uh, information. It would be a violation of their food bill of rights. If yeah, and, and in fact, uh, I, I've got another little piece that I wrote about it, kind of the idea of a food bill of rights, and one of those would be, you know, that would be the right to have information. And it doesn't mean that you would choose differently. You know, these 80-some percent of the consumers who say they want GMO labels, you can't translate that into saying that then none of them would buy GMO foods. In fact, if anything, probably almost all of them would. Because they might not, in fact, have another choice. But the value is not being able to make, not making a difference choice. It's being able to have the information and know that the choice I made was informed. Right. So disclosure of information, access to information is inherently a good exactly. value I, here. It seems to me that's been one of the premises of our whole and, society and with the First Amendment and right, everything and, that and, goes with it. And you can appreciate the importance of that value even before you know what impact it would have on consumers. Sure. Like they may not choose to eat differently, but they, Probably they could if they wanted to. If they wanted to. Right. And so it does seem like this sort of thing enhances freedom rather than interferes with it. Oh, yeah. But often the industry says the opposite. Oh, exactly. You know, for example, when, when we've been working hard on menu labeling legislation in various parts of the country so that restaurants would have to post the number of calories in their foods. And of course, that's all. They don't have to choose differently. Nobody's telling them what to eat or anything, but the information's there if they care to see it. Um, But the food industry says, well, it's the food police telling people what to eat, and it's interfering with freedom. And it's interesting to take something that really would enhance the concept of freedom and turn it on its ear like the but they and I'm sure they used those same arguments back when nutritional labeling was being proposed 20 years ago right and uh, that people haven't stopped eating I mean that's the point of this you know eating's not a choice that we make we, we can choose what to eat but we can't choose not to eat and so we're going to eat something and there's going to be farmers to produce it there's going to be companies to sell it to us foods to be manufactured uh, and in many ways, the whole question of the way we've shaped the system we have now is more a question of, well, whose values were sitting around the table and who was influencing the, the levels, the levers of government. And also there's this underlying issue of do you really trust consumers with the information? Because that's the other defense that we use. Oh, no, we can't load up the food label with all this information. It would be too confusing. People couldn't make a choice. People don't want to know this stuff. Well... If they don't want to read it, they don't have to read it. But if there's some who want it, why not give it to them? What's the risk? What's the right, danger? It would be like having uh, a label on, on a shirt or a pair of pants you buy that says what it's made of. You don't have to stop and look at it, but if you want to know, it's there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. What you, one point you're making, I think, very clearly is that more and more people want to know the story of their food or they want to know mm-hmm. about it. And there are a lot of pieces to that, aren't there? There's mm-hmm. how far it got shipped, how much energy it took to make it, whether it was genetically modified, whether it was local, and what the farmer was like who grew it, and, you know, did was it 
what kind of pesticides were used or was the chicken allowed to roam? And, sure. You know, was the cow allowed to feed on grass? And there's so mm. many interesting parts of it. And uh, if, if nothing else happens, it seems a very good thing that consumers are, are becoming more alert to these issues. Oh, certainly. I, I think that, uh, and you see that uh, throughout our food system, the rapid growth in farmers' markets, which is both a function of the value of farmers' markets, but in many ways it may be because, well, farmers' markets are the most available alternative, right? There may well be other ways that we could market it that might be more efficient, but at a farmers' market, it's at least a place where I can see it, I can touch it, I can talk to somebody who probably raised it, I know it's fresh, I know the money's going to stay local. A lot of these things, that I, these values that I have or that I'm interested in, in paying for my food, I can I can experience them there. I think much of conventional agriculture, you know, and, and the food system, is premised around the idea that the only thing that motivates people is price. Well, certainly price is part of it, but price isn't all of it. Uh, and so, really, what you're talking about is a food system that's more satisfying, and satisfaction comes in any number of things. Knowing these things that you mentioned, well. I like the fact the animals were treated well, or I like the fact I know the people and the money's going to get spent in my community, or that it wasn't shipped from too far away, or that it was an heirloom variety, or that it was organic. And, you know, some food labels are able to carry that weight. Uh, and organic is a good example. I mean, if you look at it, that's a fairly slender reed that we're trying to freight a whole ton of values onto. You know, how can you reduce them down to this legal and regulatory system of, yes, this is organic? And some of the potential weaknesses in that system are already in you know, apparent in that you can have industrialized organic food. It's just organizing the system differently. Yeah. And for some people, organic's enough. Other people would look and they say, oh, no, no, my guy, it's not organic. I, I'd, I'd rather know that it was local or that it was humanely raised or some other thing, some of which are going to be on food labels, some of which are going to be in other ways at the foods market. But from my perspective, this is all good because this is democracy in that we have more choices and more opportunity for us to be satisfied. And it's also important because we're not necessarily taking our food for granted. I mean, if you want to, you can. And we should, we, we hope we can take things for granted. When we go to the grocery store, we take for granted the stuff's not going to kill us, that it's safe, that it's been inspected, that the ingredients are, have been, you know, evaluated in some way. Some of the recent uh, incidents concerning imported foods, uh, you raise some doubts about that system. And uh, there isn't anything, I don't think, about the local foods movement or the subject we're talking about that somehow threatens the food system or that makes it more risky. If anything, it broadens it and makes it more satisfying. And, and here, from my perspective, coming from you know, a farm state and looking at things from an agricultural standpoint, part of what I've always had trouble understanding why agriculture resisted it is here are people willing to spend more money for the things that satisfy them then why isn't farming's response to say, you're going to pay me more to do it that way? I'm on. You know, let's, I'll raise some more of that if I think I can make a buck out of it. You know, why should I fall on my sword and say, oh, no, no, you need to eat it, and I want to continue to use somebody else's high-priced products that gives it a trait that you don't care for? You know, I'd like to, um, to talk about intellectual property and mm -hmm. seeds and things like that in a moment, but 
One thing that you've sort of made me think of is that the consumers have a checklist in their mind, if, if you will, not articulated, but there's a checklist in, up there somewhere of things that they want to check off before they find a food acceptable or desirable. And for a while, it, it cons- contained only a few items. It contained price, taste, and maybe uh, value. How you know if you get as much as you possibly could for the mm-hmm. lowest possible Quality, price. Yeah. And brand identity. Yeah, and that's the too. whole concept of supersizing and things. Mm-hmm. But now a lot more things are on the checklist, and the average consumer is growing. You know, where it comes from is organic and all that sort of thing. So that seems like a, a very positive development. So let's let's change subject okay. and talk about the intellectual property. Sure. Um, something as an expert on the law that that uh, you've talked about and written about is what the the legal and sort of economic and social implications are of the intellectual property law applied to food. Mm -hmm. And by that we mean the copywriting, patenting, seeds, or the genetic material in foods and things. Give us a little brief primer on that, if you would. Well, the, the people should realize that the United States has developed a fairly extensive regime of intellectual property protections that are available to particularly seed companies and folks that are developing improved and modified plant genetics. So people would think of it more in the context of, you know, music is copyrighted or a sure. book would be copyrighted. Or, and and you know, copyright or, isn't necessarily the protection that that is used here. Instead, it's either utility patents, full-blown patents, or special legal protections that were created for plants, the Plant Variety Protection Act and, and the Plant Patent Act. And um, American agriculture, I think, almost uniformly would say this has been a good thing because we, in fact, have, have benefited. I mean, the whole premise behind uh, the intellectual property rights system is that as you provide temporary legal protections in the form of economic monopolies for the inventors of these technologies, then that gives them incentives to, in fact, invest and research and develop new technologies. But then as their rights expire over time, and they've had to reveal how they developed that technology, then that moves the whole state of the art and the state of the technology forward. And the value of the technology is going to be borne out by whether or not people buy it and are willing to pay for it. And so, uh, you know, you have seen extensive improvements in plant genetics as a function of some of the privatization of the ownership of the value of the improvements. Everybody has benefited in that the technology, the developers benefit, the farmers benefit by having higher yields. Society arguably benefits by having more production at a lower cost and thus more efficient and a smaller unit cost. Now, at the same time, there are some problems in that these things can be monopolies. Um, The movement of plant research in particular into privatization has meant that what used to be public plant breeding programs, many of the land-grant colleges and other institutions, have really withered because there isn't that much interest in kind of publicly available varieties. Instead, there's been this more significant uh, privatization. And uh, there are still some, you know, people would have underlying questions as to are these things really the invention of man or how, how can you own and patent living materials. We crossed that bridge 20 years ago with rulings by the Supreme Court. You know, 
think part of the debate here, and it's almost the same debate you have on GMO foods in the U.S., is that we've, a number of these things we've kind of either backdoored our way into or stumbled into without affirmative legislation. You know, Congress has never said GMO foods should either be sold or that they shouldn't be labeled. I mean, those are decisions that have been made by the FDA under their authority under more kind of overarching food laws. Similarly, Congress has never enacted a law that said patents should be available on plant genetics. In fact, they've enacted laws that said plant variety protections should be, which is a uniquely created form. The court has said, the Supreme Court has said, well, those aren't in conflict and you can have both. Um, and so there are issues there. A lot of the issues about intellectual property rights in plants, the, the larger concerns or potential conflicts have come up more in an international environment in that there are people who feel that this is kind of the U.S. and the West promoting a very Western approach towards ownership and privatization of property. And in some cultures, they, they don't fit very well and they have different attitudes towards whether or not you should be able to have patents and have exclusive ownership. And then underlay that is some of the history of kind of what might be an imperial legacy of, uh, uh, of the world in that a lot of the advanced plant genetics that we rely on today were actually gathered and collected in other countries in kind of the developing world and many times the former colonies of other countries. And so now those people, whether you're in India or China or Indonesia or somewhere, or you have someone come back with a patented variety of a product that, in fact, was originally obtained in your country generations ago, uh, you take some offense at that, saying, well, guys, we're not getting, you didn't share us any of the benefits when you took it the first time around, and now you're asking for us to pay even more for it this time around. And those fights had had kind of simmered or had died down a little bit in in recent decades, but they're they're still out there. There was a report issued just in the last week or two by one of the nonprofit organizations, the ETC Group, that is a main uh, group concerned about uh, ownership of plant genetics, and it was a report about the proliferation of patents on climate-related genes and how. As you might expect, the major companies who are investing in research and technology and looking down the road are clamoring to obtain control over genes that would make plants more drought tolerant, uh, more resistant to type of climate change. Their view, the company's view, this is a good thing. I mean, with people, we ought to be getting medals for doing research in this area, trying to help get society where it needs to go. Whereas other people would look at that and say, oh my gosh, you know, they're just trying to position themselves to be able to control uh, kind of the next uh, next branch of technology. It's amazing how interesting and complicated these issues are. And one thing you do brilliantly is show both sides of, of these kind of issues. Well, so I, yeah, I, I at, least, at least like to think that I try to take a somewhat neutral or objective position, though I, as I have told people with some of the articles I write, you know, I find out that the middle ground isn't particularly a very wide ground in, in some of these areas. I wrote a piece back in the early 90s called Who Owns Dinner? about evolving legal mechanisms for the ownership of plant genetics and uh, took a fair amount of heat from people in the seed industry because I was willing to at least raise questions about well, what are the effects of this kind of proliferation of intellectual property protections and, and there are some concerns and and I think people, you'd be foolish to try to deny that there are concerns or that this is all great. 
Uh, but unless that's where you live, right, and you're in the seed industry. But on the other hand, uh, the kind of the beginners or the people who think these are the worst thing in the world, if you're writing anything positive about them, well, then you somehow sold out and you're a handmaiden of the seed industry. And my view is, well, my gosh, as an academic or as a scholar without kind of either a dog in the fight or somebody having a receipt for your work, uh, you should be able to raise these questions. And uh, that's, again, maybe it's part of democracy and that you hope we have these kind of informed debates and discussions and people can form their own conclusions, but at least do it on the basis of having information. So can I assume that uh, some of these very interesting papers you've written might be available from your website? Oh, sure. A number of them are, and uh, I'll make sure that anything I've talked about today that I get to you so that you could have somehow make them available. I, I, I believe most of what I've written we have up and links somehow through our website, but I want to make sure. Well, good. And we'll, we'll do links from our own website okay. to yours, and also uh, people can track you down through the Drake University mm-hmm. website. Sure, and through the Agricultural some. Law Center. Uh-huh. Okay, that's Excellent. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, us. Kelly. This has been a great honor to be at Yale and to have this time to uh, to talk with you about some of the issues. Well, these are amazing things, and I can't help but remark that uh, you've been working for many years on these issues that people are now sort of saying, oh, my God, these are very important things that we better pay attention. So well, so congratulations for well, being, for being one of the first out of the gate on these and, and making such a big difference. Well, so, so thanks to Neil Hamilton, Dwight Opperman, Chair of Law, Professor of Law and Director of the Agricultural Law Center at Drake University. As I mentioned at the outset, you can come to our website uh, at the Rudd Center, www.yaleruddcenter.org. Dot org uh, to find uh, the link to this podcast and to others that we've recorded. Thank you very much.